Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. So I want to say thank you for an incredible sermon uh, last week. And we're so grateful for the over 20 new dedications and, and lives surrendered to Christ last week. We're so, so incredible. And uh, what a wonderful reminder that uh, God came from heaven down to earth. And through my devotions this week, I, I, I listened to a sermon where the person was talking about God's speed, how fast God moves. And it reminded me of your sermon because God moves at three miles an hour. That three miles an hour is the space that we walk. He walks alongside us. So God that came down doesn't go ahead of us. He walks alongside of us. And so I'm super excited about this Abide series. Um, there's a story about a school that had a fire alarm go off, a primary school. The kids were super excited. The fire alarm goes off. They're like, yo, free period. Uh, we're going to go sit and chill for a little while. And so that excitement was dampened very quickly because as they left their classroom, they realized that this wasn't a drill. It was the real thing. Smoke bellowing out of a couple of the classrooms. The kids uh, made it outside. And uh, sadly, a number of children lost their lives in this incident. And the principal and the teacher of that particular school said, this will never happen again. And they ensured to do that. And they, they installed the state-of-the-art uh, fire sprinkler system into the school so that it would circumvent that kind of thing happening again. And um, three or four weeks after that, set up this new sprinkler system. The janitor was walking around the venue, just checking everything. And to his surprise, he noticed that the state-of-the-art sprinkler system hadn't been connected to the water supply. And so had there been a fire, there would have been anything but disaster in that school. And so as I think about this series that we're in of abiding in Christ, our high-tech lifestyles and our high standards of what we do, uh, is that lifestyle, is that online engagement that you do connected to a source? So that when tragedy hits, Will you be able to have that life-giving water that comes from Christ, um, be able to come into those circumstances? And sometimes I think we have the state-of-the-art stuff happening around us, but we are not connected to the source. And so I love what Jesus says in... Um, uh, are we able to go to the next slide? Okay. Uh, go one back. Did I go forward now? You know, I rehearsed this really well in the 8.15 service. It was going smoothly, right? And so Jesus, in John 5, 2, says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passed from death to life. And so Jesus has given us an indication of how to connect to that source. What is the process of connecting to that life-giving source that will give us eternal life? And so we're going to begin to unpack this scripture today. And so can we get this thing sorted? Thanks. So, so Jesus is saying these words just before, uh, just after he healed the person at uh, the pool of Beth, oh, sorry, I've lost it again. Hey? Bethesda. Bethesda. You know, before the sermon, I had it done. In the second, in the first service, I didn't have it done. Bethesda. 
So at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus just healed a lame man. And as he had healed that lame man, he told the lame man to pick up his mat and walk. And as he picks up his mat and walk, he offends the religious leaders of, of, of the Jewish people at the time. And the Jewish leaders ask the man, who told you to pick up your mat on the Sabbath? And he points to Jesus. And so all the attention of the religious leaders point to Jesus and say, like, what is happening? And so when Jesus says, if you hear my words and believe, you will have eternal life, it's in the context of Jesus addressing these spiritual leaders of the time. And so not only does he say those words, but Jesus says a whole bunch of other things that upset these people about how he is God and how God had sent him. And he makes a whole bunch of claims that really upsets these people so much is that they start to plot to kill Jesus at that time. So it wasn't just a Sabbath controversy. It was far more than that. And so Jesus says, the first thing he says to those religious leaders that if you hear my word. And so this morning, Jesus is saying to you and me, if we hear his word, right? If we hear his word, how busy are our lives? When I talk about busy, maybe it's how loud is your life? Is your life loud, super busy. And I don't have a problem with busyness because Jesus was super busy. He was busy all the time, from the morning to the evening, healing people, feeding people, engaging with religious leaders. So his life was busy, but Jesus was never rushed. And so this is, the, I think, the fundamental difference that is your life rushed or is it just calm? And you're busy, but you're not rushed. And when Jesus' life was not rushed, it meant that he could engage with children along his journey. He could heal people along his way. And as you go along your way, are you rushed? Are you overwhelmed with rushness and busyness that you can't spend time with your kids or, or loved ones at home because of this noise that we have in our lives? Now, I do this activity uh, when I'm doing some corporate work. Uh, I ask my participants to be still for about three to five minutes. Just sit in silence. Um, I, I, when I do it with grade 11 students, I ask them to be silent for three hours. Now, I know some of you are saying, oh, three hours? I'm only going to be here for the next 20 minutes. I don't think I'm going to be silent for three hours. And, and so what I'm going to ask you to do is just for 30 seconds or 20 seconds, if you don't mind, just being still. And for my online folks, I'm hoping that you're in a spot where you can just be quiet for 20 seconds. The introverts are saying, at last, silence. Cannot a whole service just be silence? Like, that is amazing. The pastor can just be there and be silent. I'll come to church every Sunday. Right? The extroverts are like, that's the longest 20 seconds of my entire life. Right? Uh, uh, there's too many of us to ask, but uh, what did you hear when you were silent? Uh, I know some of us might say we heard a little baby making a little noise over there. Somebody said, I heard somebody move in my chair. Somebody might say they heard the aircon go in, you know. We can hear those things. But at a deeper level, how many of you were having a conversation with yourself? How many of you were talking about, 
yo, how am I going to pay the bill at the end of this month? Yo, 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 yo. Or, yo, I came to church and I had a fight with the person sitting next to me. Now I must go home with them. Like, how's this all working out this morning? Uh, some of you might be sitting there saying, yo, this fast. I'm looking forward to lunch this afternoon and this pastor, if he can end. It sounds like that's really what you were thinking, right? Um, if this pastor can just be done so I can go eat those grapes and get into my Daniel fast. And maybe some of you are sitting there saying, if I just had a cup of coffee, the sermon would be amazing. And as people are sitting there in their silence, I know that my own anxiety begins to rise, right? Because as a person facilitating this kind of process, I'm wondering what you're thinking of me. Has he lost his mind? Has he forgotten his words? Does he just need a moment to breathe and he's taking us along around those things? And so as much as there's outward noise, there's also inward noise. And if we're going to be effective in hearing the words of God, we need to still the noise inside. We need to not only still those loud noise, but those inner noises that are inside of us. And I don't know if there's any teachers in the room, but um, to still a rowdy class, the worst thing you can do is to shout above a rowdy class. Because what happens? The volume just goes up. They join you. Say, oh, we're all shouting. Let's all shout together, right? And so the best way to calm a, a, a rowdy class is to go, shh to begin to whisper. And that is what God does in our rowdy lives. He begins to whisper to us. It's wonderful what Zephaniah 3.17 says, is that the, God, the Lord your God is in your midst. He is my, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you with his love. Won't you let God quiet you with his love this morning, out of the busy, noisy lives that we live, won't you let him come and just quiet you with his love, hold you tight? Because there's some amazing things that happen in silence. You see, silence is not a passive activity. It's a really proactive activity in terms of getting to hear God's word. I remember I was in Michalisburg one day, I was walking in a forest next to a river, and I felt God prompting me to sit next to this pond. And so as I sat next to the pond, I had my Bible and notebook, almost said, put that away. I just want you to sit and be still. And so as I sat and I was being still, what I noticed was this forest started coming alive. There was a, a monkey in the trees over there, and then another one, and there was a 10 monkeys watching me, and as I watched that, I noticed a camouflaged frog, frog sitting on a rock over there, and as I sat quieter, I started noticing more insects closer to me, and before long, the whole forest was alive, and it was just overwhelming, the kind of life that was around me, and I felt God saying to me at that moment, when you're silent before me, I will begin to reveal myself to you in ways like you cannot believe, and it'll come to a point where I will be the only voice you will hear. And so this encouragement of being still before the Lord in this very busy world that we're operating in, because teachers will know this, that if the shh, the whisper doesn't work, the next thing teachers do is they go up to Sarah and say, Sarah, won't you be still? Like a nice touch on the arm or on the shoulder. And every now and then, we might need God to move beyond the soft whisper and say, Lerato, I need your attention now, right? And throughout Scripture, we see that when people weren't still, God interrupted their lives with a gentle nudge, whether it was Moses and the burning bush, 
Um, Jonah and the whale was not quite a nudge. I think it's a little bit more than a nudge, but it was a nudge saying, Jonah, I need you to really listen to me. Yeah. Or is it Balaam and the donkey, right? But God will intervene in your life if you do not uh, keep that still, right? And so the question during this time in fasting is, what is one noise you could cut out from your daily schedule this week that will enable you to hear God's whisper more clearly in your life? Is it cutting out some social media? Is it spending those 15 minutes extra in the presence of God? Is it looking at your schedule? This online working has made us have meetings back to back. There's no break. You know, pre-COVID, between meetings, you at least had to walk from one venue to another, which would give you an opportunity to go to the toilet, catch your breath, and be prepared with this online life. It's just like one meeting into the next, and there's no, you still think you're still in that other meeting. And maybe it's about looking at your schedule and saying, Lord, I just need 15 minutes between each of these meetings. And maybe God will whisper to you about something that is relevant for that next meeting. And so be aware, what is one thing you can change in your schedule now so that you can begin to hear the whisper of God? And so hearing God's word is one thing, but understanding what God is saying to us is a whole nother story. And for us to do that, we're going to go to uh, John 5, 6. When Jesus saw the lame man laying there, knowing that he had been there a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Isn't that such a question? Do you want to get well? And so Jesus is not only asking the man 2,000 years ago, he's asking everyone in you in this auditorium today, do you want to get well? Right? Do you want to get well in your relationships between your husbands and wives? Do you want to get well between your relationships between your parents and yourself? Do you want to get well between your relationships at work? Do you want to get well in your mind, body, soul, and spirit? Do you want to get well? Right? Such a weird question. Of course the man wants to get well, doesn't he? But maybe not. Maybe the man said, Jesus asked him the question, said, because he didn't look worthy. You know, the man might have felt, I'm not worthy of God's goodness and grace in my life. How many of us turned on the TV today, switched on uh, to connecting to this online broadcast and say, I'm not worthy of God's grace. How many of us walked into this auditorium and said, I'm not worthy of God dying for me. How many of us are saying, I'm not worthy to be a husband. I'm not worthy to be a mother. I'm not worthy to be part of this family. I'm not worthy. And maybe we like that man. Maybe we fear disappointment. Maybe the man didn't want to be healed because he's been there for 38 years. And maybe he just said, like, if God doesn't heal me now, I'll have this disappointment. And so rather live with this being lame than live in constant disappointment. And so how many of us are yeah, saying, I, I, I want to believe, but I don't want to be disappointed. I've been asking God for this thing for such a long time, and I don't want to be disappointed. And so I don't believe for more because I don't want to live in that disappointment. Or is it a loss of earning? Is it earrings, earnings? I don't know what I've written there, right? It's earning, a loss of earning, money. Because as a lame man, if he was healed today, this afternoon, he wouldn't be able to earn the same money through begging, right? And so maybe he didn't want to be healed. And maybe some of us have associated our ailment and our dysfunction with value. We derive some kind of value from this thing of not being fully engaged around that. I get a certain amount of empathy from people. And so if I don't have this, then I'm not going to get that same kind of empathy. 
Uh, and the last one is that this was part of this man's identity. It's interesting, throughout Scripture, uh, the layman, it didn't say uh, Samuel was laying at the bed there and he was layman. He was just a layman, right? Uh, the woman with an issue of blood. The man demon-possessed. And so those things become our identity. And don't we do this in the church? That divorced couple, that, that, that's who we're talking about here. Or do you know that she gave up her child for adoption? Or you know that that was the drug dealer or the drug user? And that becomes the default setting of their identity, not who they are in Christ, not their name in terms of who they are. And so maybe that's why we don't want to be healed, because I've become associated with this thing, right? I've become associated by saying, I've been unemployed for 20 years, and that has become my identity. And so when Jesus tells him to pick up his mat, he's fundamentally changing everything about this man. Because on Monday, he has to show up differently. He can't show up as a lame man anymore. And so when Jesus is asking you, do you want to be healed? And you say, yes, it means tomorrow you show up differently. It means that you step towards that relationship differently. It means that you look at the world differently because your identity fundamentally begins to shift. And so John 5, 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I don't have anyone to put me in the, in the water when it's stirred up. Um, when, they, when I'm trying to get there, someone else goes ahead of me. And so I find this so interesting. The man assumed that Jesus didn't understand what was happening there. And it was on him now to explain to Jesus what was happening. How many of us do that? Jesus, you don't know the man I married. Right? If you only knew the woman that I'm living with and married, you too would say, I don't want to be healed from this thing. If you only met my boss, oh Lord, if you knew my boss, you would also want to quit. Lord, if you only knew how the budgeting in our family worked, you would know we wouldn't be able to make it at the end of the month. How are we explaining, oh, have you seen my board members, Jesus? They're the most toughest people in the world. And so when we come and engage with Jesus, we're trying to explain to him how things are really are, right? The other thing that's interesting about this man is this mixed combination of hopelessness and hope. So he, arrived, he has the hope to come to the pool, but somehow lacks the faith to be healed once he's there. How many of us have the hope to come to church, but we don't have hope for taking that next step in our faith, right? And so how many of us are sitting with that mixture of hope and hopelessness all combined? And then he limits God. As I was meditating and reading the scripture over and over, I was like, what is happening here? And I think a possibility is the man saying to Jesus, you know, Jesus, if you hang around long enough, you will be able to put me in the pond and I will be healed, right? And so he takes his worldly understanding of how he's going to get his healing and asks Jesus to come alongside him. And he limits Jesus, or he's limiting Jesus, to how Jesus can help him in that circumstance. And don't you and I do that? Jesus, I've got the strategy, and if you come in at that particular time, it's going to go really, really well, right? And we limit God to move miraculously in our lives because we have a strategy, because we know how this thing is working. I know that if I'm going to lecture there. I need to have a doctorate. So Lord, help me get a doctorate and then I can lecture there. But I'm telling you now, you can lecture with your matric at the top university in the world. God will make a way for you where there doesn't seem to be a way. And so John 8, 5, 8, Jesus says to him, pick up your mat and walk. Now what is happening young? Jesus is challenging the man to believe the impossible. 
The man hasn't walked for 38 years. And Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus is challenging every single one of us to believe for the impossible in our lives. You might not have the finances. You might not have the ability to do what you want to be doing. And Jesus is going to challenge you to do the impossible. Now, the man could have sat back and said, why should I even try? This is impossible. And I wonder, like, what, what, what happened first? Did he wiggle his toes first? Did he reach for his mat first? Like, what was that first thing that he did that started the snowball of that miracle? And what I love Jesus did, yeah, he says, he guided the man to a faith response. He didn't come to the man and say, let me help you up. Let's try one foot in the other. Like, he didn't do any of that. He stood away from the man and said, pick up your mat. And it was upon the man to make the first move once Jesus had spoken those words. And so when you've asked Jesus to heal you, it is now up to you to say, I'm going to take that first step. He is calling you towards a response of faith in one way or another. And so you need to know what it is. Because for me, it's something for size different. For other people, it's different. You need to know what is that response that Jesus is calling you to. And so we hear the word of God. But the next statement that Jesus says is, but you, and we need to believe in him. There's a story about Charles Blondin, a world-famous tightrope walker. He would put up tightropes over buildings, over different places. He was like a phenomenon at his time. And one day, he puts up a tightrope over the Niagara Falls. Thousands of people came to watch him that day as he walked over the Niagara Falls. It took him a long time to do this. And every time he did this, the audience would go, ooh, ah. When he got to the other side, the crowd broke up into an applause. <laughs> Stand innovation. People were losing their minds. And so he quietens the audience down. They say, shh, shh. He says, do you believe I can do it again? And the crowd shouted, yes. He said, are you sure you believe I can do it again? And the crowd shouted, yes. He said, one more time, do you believe I can do it again? And the crowd shouted, yes. And then he said, who will get on my back? to go to the other side. Oh, I don't think we believe you can do it again. Right? Do you believe that God is going to transform our country? Yeah! Oh, the yes is not so loud now because you know where I'm going, right? Do you believe that God can heal your marriage? Maybe. Do you believe that God has got a job for you? Oh, I'm not sure anymore. You know why? Because Jesus is inviting you on this journey to your miracle. Right, And so it's about us saying, I want to be part of this. There's an invitation to be part of this eternal life. And you need to get on his back or in the wheelbarrow or whatever, but he's going places. And so this belief that God is speaking about, or Jesus is speaking about, is not a head knowledge. It's not something that we read and say, yes, I believe that. It's far more experiential about believing who God is. And so it's about trusting in, relying on, and clinging Two. And so when we think about trusting, you ever did that trust exercise where somebody closed, you blindfolded your eyes, and then you had a partner that said, step here, you're not allowed to touch it, but step there, step there. People walk like this. You've done that exercise, right? It's so important to listen to the person that's leading you. And why is it so difficult for us as humans? Because the moment you take our sight away, life becomes really difficult because we live in a society, in a world that says seeing is believing. Uh, there are so many neurons connected to our eyes that in many ways our sight is our superpower as human beings. Uh, when dogs look for things, they smell. Uh, when animals, they, they hear. As humans, we look 
we see, we attracted, we look for diseases through things. So our eyes are fundamentally the way we engage with the world. There's this famous um, um, science experiment called the McGurk effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, where they record a woman saying the word bar, bar, bar. And then what they do is they overlap that with another video recording of her saying a different word. When you watch that video clip, your brain trusts your eyes implicitly and will change what you hear to hear a phantom word other than bomb. It's a powerful experiment. When you close your eyes and listen to the same clip, you will hear the original word. How many of us are so living or caught up that we seem to believe in that our spiritual life, our brains, are supplementing what God is saying about something because we believe in what our eyes are telling us, right? And so it's so important not to believe so much always what we see, but to remember to be hearing what God is saying to us, right? And so our eyes are the things that, that move us in a particular way. And so what does trusting God look like for you? When you think about trusting God, what are those things that come to mind? Sai, you did a great job um, last week when you said, if I walk into a coffee shop and I see Rex, I can say I know Rex because I spend time with him. But there's a number of people, if I saw you in a coffee shop, I'm sorry, I'm not going to say I know you. Like, I can't, can't say that because I haven't spent time with you. And so this trusting of God talks about spending time with God. And so one, we spend time seeking his truth in Scripture. And so often we believe God has spoken to us and we're going in a particular direction, but we haven't vetified it, ratified it in the Word of God. And we haven't spent time. And so we trust in God on something that he hasn't really said to us. And so seeking truth in Scripture is important. Being in community is so important. Rex spoke about it earlier this morning, this, this importance of connect group. That when I'm in my connect group, they spur me on. It's easier to trust God when I'm in connect group. And through prayer and worship, we begin to trust God, right? Um, and so this week of fasting and prayer, uh, if you heard my prayer on Monday, somebody came and asked me, I need a job. My prayer was tentative on Monday. Lord, if it's your will. Won't you provide this person with the opportunity? Like, it's a little bit tentative. Like, Lord, maybe it's not your will for them to get a job. By Thursday, Friday, I'm praying for divine appointments at 11 o'clock on Tuesday that this door will be open. And if we carried on, I'd probably start offering people jobs myself because I'm trusting God so much. So I praise the Lord that we stopped on Friday and we didn't go to Saturday, right? And so the more you pray... The more your faith builds up, the more you pray, the more you realize you can trust God for a whole bunch of things. And then last week in the 815 service, Belinda gave this credible word that as we lift our praise and worship up to God, it begins to create a light, like a breakthrough in our lives. And so you cannot sing, sing here, you are Alpha and Omega, and not trust that he's Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And so as we spend time in prayer and worship, our trust in the Lord begins to go up. We need to rely on God. And when we think about relying on God, it's a foreign concept outside of these four walls. Uh, for the people online, it's a foreign concept outside of your house to rely on something other than yourself. In society, there's this, this push to self-reliance, a push to grow in your own food, producing your own power, doing your own thing, doing it all about you. And so... Um, we need to rely on God because it's not weakness. It is strength when we rely on God. 
Jeremiah 17.6 gives us a warning when we rely on ourselves. The Lord proclaims, uh, proclaims, Cursed are those who trust in mere humans, who depend on human strength and turn their hearts from the Lord. They are like the desert shrub that knows no relief uh, where it comes. They live in a parched place of the wilderness that is barren, the land where no one survives, when we are self-reliant. When we are self-reliant, there's a limit to loyalty uh, and intimacy with God. That I'm, I don't feel like I need to be intimate with God. I don't feel I need to be intimate or loyal to any of you in this place because my future is in my hands and I can drive it. There's also, uh, it leaves God, no room for God to do miraculous things when it's my reliance, when I do this by myself. God has no glory in that. Um, uh, self-reliance is almost like challenging God to say, I will do it. There's scriptures all over scripture that see when people have taken it on upon themselves and not relying on God. And in Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8, there's an encouragement about this reliance on God. Happy are those who trust in the Lord, who rely on the Lord. They will be like trees planted by the stream, who roots reach down in the water. They won't fear the, the drought when it comes. Their leaves will remain green. They won't be stressed in a time of drought or failure to bear fruit. Isn't that an incredible promise? That when we rely on God, these incredible things begin to happen. And so when there's reliance on God, there's confidence and courage. When I rely on God, even though I didn't have a good example of what it means to be a good husband, when I rely on God, I can enter my relationship with confidence, knowing that Jesus is going alongside me, that God is going to help me in those circumstances. When I'm relying on God, it allows me to have courage to do things that I otherwise would never seem possible for me to do. And I, one of those things is I, I get to lecture at one of the top university business schools in the continent, and I often smile to myself because I'm not worthy to be there. I don't have the credentials to be there. But every time I open my laptop, this courage comes over me because it's not me. It is God through me to do those things, right? And so there's courage that comes with those things. And so how do we tap into this, this reliance on God? We need to recognize our failures. We need to recognize that God is God and I am not. Then we need to ask him to step in. And finally, we need to shift our focus. And as we begin to shift our focus to him, amazing things begin to happen. And then we need to cling to. I don't know for you, which image comes to mind when you think about clinging uh, for me, there are four images that come to mind. One is a, um, a couple that love each other and hold each other. They cling to one another. Scripture says, you will leave your mother and father and cling to your wife. And so this idea of clinging to loved ones. Uh, this other image comes to mind is a, a child holding their parent's hand. And for anybody that's uh, started grade one this year and you walked your child into school, they cling to your hand, right? So tight, right? And so are you clinging into the father? The other image is those creepers that climb up the mountain, up on the, on the wall and they cling to that wall. And for me, it's uh, these monkeys that jump from one tree to the next and those babies hold on to their mothers for dear life. There's almost no space for you to put your hand in between them, right? And so are you clinging to the Father that there's nothing that will come in between that? That there's no sin that will push its way in between you clinging to the Father as you believe in, in Him? And so what are the ways that practicing clinging to God have helped you? 
uh, in recent times. Maybe that's a question you can have over coffee with a friend and say, how are you clinging to God and how has it helped you recently? And so if we hear God's word and we believe, we will get eternal lives. One of the greatest gifts I've ever given was given was the opportunity to be at one of my best friend's side of his bed when he was passing away. It was an incredible experience watching my friend die and in my hands. Once he had passed, once he had gone to eternal life, this incredible peace rested in the room. It's amazing to be in those moments. But this funny thing about death, right, is that our body is constantly fighting against it. So as my friend was dying, his body didn't want to give up. Like it fought with this last little breath. And when he left, it was over and it was peaceful. As you're sitting here, I love this quote. Well, I don't know if I love it, but I came across it. The idea of death and the fear of it haunts every human being like no other animal. As you're sitting here right now, death is ready for you. Now, somebody once said to me, you're one breath away from eternity, right? So as you're sitting here, your body is fighting off death. Every breath you take, it's fighting off death. You're sitting there, your body's aware, is coronavirus here? I'm fighting it off. My mask is on. I don't want it here. You are, if you hear a bang over there, your body will turn to it. Why? To protect itself. We are all running away from this death. Unless you're a Christian. Because if we're in Christ, those who believe in the Son of God have passed. We don't pass over from life to death. We go from death to life. Death does not fear. We do not fear death. We look forward to it because we're going to be with our Creator. We're going to be able to experience eternal life. Now, death row is a place where you are confronted with death in many ways. And a story about John Kelly. Uh, uh, at the age of 12, John had a gun in the one hand and in the other hand a bag of heroin crack cocaine that he was going to sell. At the age of 13, 14 was his first experience in jail. And when he was 17, he was on death row waiting to be prosecuted to go uh, into prison for killing somebody. And while he's on death row, a prison guard hands him a Bible. He opens the Bible. He hears God. He believes. He changes his life on death row. He has an experience with God. And as he has this experience with God, he goes to the lawyers and says, um, he has a bit of an argument with God. So now that I'm a Christian, I can't say I'm not guilty. I killed that, that person. Even if they're a drug dealer, I killed them. And so he goes to the lawyer and says, I'm changing my plea from not guilty to guilty. I'm guilty. And he gets an opportunity to meet the family and the judge, and he says, I'm guilty. He repents. The family show him mercy. The judge shows him leniency, and from a death penalty, he gets 20 years in jail. He only gets to serve six of those years. And God's mercy in John's life completely changes it. And so from, a, from death row to preaching, he's been married for 10 years. He has two children. He runs a church in Chicago. He's currently doing his doctorate. And so from, a pre, from death row to preacher, God intervened in this man's life. And God is willing to intervene in your life today. And so, no one meets Jesus and leaves the same. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, when they met Jesus, they left angry, frustrated, willing to kill him. When the lame man meets Jesus, he leaves him a changed person. 
If you came here today, if you turned on your TV or your device and you're watching this, you cannot leave this place unchanged. If you have met with Jesus today and you walk out those doors, you're either going to be frustrated or you're going to be fundamentally shifted in who you are today. But we cannot meet Jesus and leave the same. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you so much that you have invited us to be part of this journey of abiding in and with you, Lord Father God. This morning, as we evaluate our lives, Lord Father God, as we have heard your word and, and we believe in you, Lord Father God, we know that there is eternal life for us. And as I shared the story of uh, John Kelly this morning, he was on death row, death was imminent. For some of us in this room, we are on a different death row. And that death row is that you're far from Christ, that you're far from God. If you're online, you joined us and you haven't made a commitment to Christ, you're on death row, you are far from God. And just like in the story where John Kelly was offered an opportunity of grace, there's an opportunity of grace for you this morning. And so if you're sitting in the auditorium and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't you want to raise your hand and say, that's me, I'm on death row and I want eternal life. I want to hear, I want to be with God. I want to change my life. I need that same kind of grace. If you, yeah, don't you want to raise your hand and let me know that that's, that's me, God is speaking to me this morning and I, I want to get off death row and I want to come to know Jesus. See that one hand. Father, I thank you for that hand that has been raised, Lord Father God. If there's somebody online and you're sitting in your lounge, your car, outside in the garden, and you're saying, that's me, I need God's grace, let people know online. Go into that chat box, let them know, and somebody from our church community will reach out to you. So, Father, for that person that's raised their hand, Lord Father God, won't you be with them right now, Lord Father God? Church, won't you pray with me as that person prays right now? Lord, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of your grace and mercy. I'm so far from you. Lord, I hear your words this morning calling to me. And I want to believe those words. Won't you take residence in my heart? Won't you change my life? Won't you heal me? Amen.